0: It's great to be here this morning. Uh, uh, we're honored that you would come give some of your time to study the Word with us. I'm excited to open it up to you. For those of you who who I have not met before, uh, when I'm uh, normally in my work life, uh, I don't do this. I'm a lawyer, a, a trial lawyer. So one of my favorite lawsuits that we've had in a while was when I was hired to represent the sugar growers of America. Um, they're sweet people. And... Uh, the sugar growers of America were very upset because there was an artificial sweetener that was um, advertising itself as made from sugar, so it tastes like sugar. Now, the sugar growers were upset because they did not believe that artificial sweetener was made from sugar. They considered it a, a, uh, an artificial sweetener that could have just as easily been made from onions because it involved this 18-step chemical process, blah, 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 blah. And the sugar growers wanted Splenda to stop advertising made from sugar. So it tastes like sugar. So they hired us to try to get them to stop doing that. We brought the lawsuit. We had it out in Los Angeles. Um, uh, In the process of learning that case, I started doing some research on how Splenda was invented. And there's a story that's out there that may be apocryphal, it may be real, but but to the best of our understanding, it was real. From Tate and Lyle, who had invented this uh, product called Sucralose, out in England. And what, uh, as the story goes, what the guys were originally trying to do, the chemists, they were trying to invent a pesticide. Now, to make the pesticide work, you can't just stick a poison out there and expect a bug to come eat it. The poison needs to taste sweet. So they took a, a kind of a, a sugar sweetener type molecule and they added to it, bound to it, chlorine. Because chlorine is a poison. And they put it out there and they tested it on the the bugs. And the bugs would eat it, but it wouldn't kill the bugs. Just passed right through them. Because the, 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 the sugar tasted sweet, but the chlorine bound to the sugar was not absorbed in their system. So the poison doesn't have any effect by the same token the sugar wasn't absorbed into their system either, or the sweetener part, the sweet molecule. So the the chemists are sitting there, they're scratching their heads and saying, Hey, tastes pretty sweet. And assuming it does the same thing in us, it will pass right through the system. We won't get the calories from the sweetener and we won't be poisoned by the chlorine because they just bind together. And so launched a brand new product that probably made McNeil Labs and Johnson & Johnson a whole lot more than that pesticide ever would have. So we filed the suit. We said, you've got to stop advertising made from sugar so it tastes like sugar. And those wonderful little sugar packets, if you got one on your way in today, if we can go to the Elmo, now says, imagine life sweeter. <laughs> they don't say made from sugar so it tastes like sugar anymore. So the, the, the lawsuit worked. But I was reminded of this story talking to Becky because I was talking about the idea of unintended consequences. And here are these fellows that are trying to invent a pesticide. But in the process, they wind up inventing a marvelous artificial sweetener. And if you're into artificial sweeteners, this one works. Um, uh, it, It tastes sweet and it has absolutely no calories at all. Now, I'm not a health nut to tell you whether or not it's healthy for you. That's not my job. My job is to keep them from saying made from sugar so it tastes like sugar. And that we did. But the unintended consequences is actually pretty good when we start talking about Paul and the spread of the church. Because when we think about how did Paul spread the church, our natural thought are those mission trips he took and all of his mission efforts. And that's true. That was very uh, 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 deliberate and a a deliberate spread of the church. But the story of Paul and and the way Paul personally was responsible for helping to spread the church actually starts before Paul's conversion. And Luke records the story that way. We've talked about this story already in this class, but now we're focusing on it in terms of Paul. So much of what we're looking at in Acts, we've looked at in overview, but now we're starting to look at it in a little bit closer examination. And so we've got here Paul, and if you're trying to answer that question internally, where was Paul spreading the church as an unintended consequence, your mind should immediately come to the stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the church. Acts 8.1 says, Saul approved of his execution. The his meaning Stephen's. Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution. Now that doesn't mean the precise day. Day in the Bible can mean a a time period. Just a, a, a period of time. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they they being the church, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So as a result of Paul and the persecution of the church, the church spreads like a virus. And Paul is actually a profound missionary even when he's fighting against God. Because God takes Paul's efforts in one direction What Paul had as an unintended consequence was clearly intended by God. You see the same reference later on in Acts 11 where Luke says now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. Of course, they were speaking the word to no one but Jews. So it then took Paul to come in and start speaking it to the Gentiles as well. And Paul's used that way. So Paul and the spread of the church is our subject this week. I hope to continue it next week. But in the process of talking about Paul and the spread of the church, we've got to start with the unintended consequence that happened as a result of Stephen. So let's begin there. We will start with uh, Paul as a persecutor. And the stoning of Stephen. Our two main subjects to cover this morning. Paul the persecutor. Let's begin there. Paul never forgot. What he had been. And what he had done. Paul never forgot the way he persecuted the church. Um, If you look at this passage. Out of Galatians. Paul says. You have heard. Of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, advancing in zeal beyond many of, uh, uh, of my own age among my people. So extremely was I for the traditions of my fathers. By the way, his fathers were Pharisees. Paul will say, I was a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. So Paul was so zealous for the Pharisaical traditions of his father that he was persecuting the church violently. And it's something he kept with him and remembered. And of course, who wouldn't? Paul never forgot. And if you look at the story of Stephen's stoning, When Stephen in Acts 7 starts talking about uh, 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 Jesus to the people, the reaction of, uh, of, let's go to the Elmo for a moment. The reaction of those who listened is, got some words in it. When they heard these things, what are the things? Stephen's been arrested. Stephen's in front of the Sanhedrin. There are probably at least seven, well, there are 72 members of the Sanhedrin, we believe, or 71, excuse me. 71 members of the Sanhedrin. But to be on trial, like Stephen was, required at least 23 to be present. Okay? So, at least 23, but probably more. They heard these things as Stephen proclaimed Not only Jesus being the answer to the long-standing prophecies of the Old Testament. But to the Jews of the temple for being the people who killed Jesus. So after Stephen says these things, the people who heard him, they're enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears and they rushed together at him. If we go back to the PowerPoint now. I mean, he starts talking and they're going, la, 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 la. get him. That's the picture that's painted. They're enraged. They're grinding their teeth. They're crying out and stopping up their ears. This is a vivid, I mean, if, if you could go back in time and be there, you've got these, the sophisticated, the, the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling class, being thrown into a fit by Stephen. And Paul talks later about casting his vote. Whether Paul was one of the 23 Sanhedrin who voted. Or whether Paul was just one of the other people who was giving a thumbs up. Paul was there. And this is a vivid memory that's burned into his brain. Paul never forgot this. Acts 9, 56 through sixty. Paul will say, actually it's Acts 7, 56 through 60. Paul will say, when he hears, behold, the heavens open, the Son of Man standing. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul's there. He witnesses these things. He never forgets what he sees. Now, let's go back to the PowerPoint. So why would Paul do this? I think it's useful for us to ask this question. What was Paul's motive in doing this? Why would Paul participate in killing Stephen? Well, you can say, well, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. No, 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 no. Gamaliel, his teacher, even said, guys, we shouldn't be persecuting this. It'll die out. What was Paul's motive? Well, we see in the passage that we've already looked at in Galatians, and we'll see in others. Paul linked his persecuting to his zeal as a Pharisee. Now, what we've kind of done in this class, hopefully, if you've been tracking with us, is we've been building a house by taking bricks. And so we took bricks a couple of weeks, and we talked about what happened between the Old and New Testament. This was almost a year ago. Then we took bricks for a couple of weeks and we've been talking about Paul as a Pharisee. And what about the Pharisees at the time of Jesus? But now we're taking those bricks and putting them together to build a house. And I hope as we do this, you see how much more there is to understand in Scripture when we put it into context. Because that's what we need to do here. We want to understand why Paul says zeal as a Pharisee would be the reason he was persecuting the church violently, even condoning the stoning of Stephen. So I'm going to throw some passages up here for us to look at. We're going to look at a Philippians passage, two passages out of Acts. And then a Galatians passage. And the reason we're looking at these is because I want you to see that Paul says, I persecuted the church because I was a zealous Pharisee. I was zealous for the Pharisees, for the traditions of my fathers. So if we start with Philippians, uh, Philippians 3, 5 through 6. Something we've already looked at here or I wouldn't have highlighted it in this class Bible. Okay. So Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Let me, let's take this into context. If we go back up to the start, Paul's talking to Philippians and he says, listen, you shouldn't be putting confidence in the flesh and you shouldn't be bragging about who you are and what you've done. If anybody's got reason to brag about who they are and what they've done, it is I, it is Paul. I have that reason more than any of you. Look at my CV. Look at my resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. All right, I'm of the people of Israel. That means I'm not a converted Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That means we kept my genealogy all the way back. It's never been lost. I'm not a cloudy Jew. I'm a purebred. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Means he still knows the language. He still knows the customs. As to the law of Pharisee. That's the way he understood scripture. That's the way he approached it. That's the way he interpreted it. That was the tradition of him. The tradition of his fathers. And look what he links to that. As to zeal. How zealous was I as a Pharisee? I was a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous. Now, if you look at the next phrase, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, who condones the stoning of Stephen, who's a persecutor of the church, says as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. We're going to get to that in a minute. Why would Paul consider his persecuting the church holy and right. But first, see that link between Phariseeism, being zealous as a Pharisee, and persecuting the church. You also see the link in Paul's speech in Acts 22. Acts 22 verses 3 and 4. Paul says Acts 22, 3 and 4. This is his speech we talked about last week, where we talked about him being a Pharisee. But I want you to see, we didn't pull out the link where Paul links that Phariseeism to his persecuting the church. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Those are his Pharisee fathers. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." Paul did this because he was zealous for his Pharisaical fathers. That's why he persecuted the church. He'll add to it in chapter 23, verse 6, where Paul perceives that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees. He cries out, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. This is his lineage, these are his fathers. This is what he's doing. Then the Galatians passage, last but not least. We're going to put all these together, so just hang on to the bricks. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. You have heard of my former life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, the Pharisees. Now, you put all of this together, if Paul's linking what he's doing to Paul being a Pharisee, I think the question becomes, if we go back to the PowerPoint, why would a Pharisee be persecuting the church? To know that, we need to put together some of the history of the Pharisees that we learned way back when we were talking about what happened between the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament ends around 400 B.C. The New Testament, the birth of Christ, happens a couple of years B.C. So you've got almost a 400-year gap. And if you recall during that gap, Alexander the Great conquered the world. What they considered the world. Conquered what they considered the world. In conquering the world, he took Greek Literature, Greek education, the Greek language, and the Greek culture. And he spread it throughout the Mediterranean world. Now, after Alexander dies, his kingdom divides up into four different regions. Ruled by four different generals become dynasties. In the process, there's a fight over the Israelite dynasty, the dynasty around Israel, between the Seleucids in Egypt, and the Persian rulers. So they're fighting back and forth. Now, if you roll forward into about 175 B.C., there was this horrible fella named Antiochus Epiphanes who decided that he would take Greek culture and impose it upon the Jews. There were a lot of Jews that were going along with him. He took the temple in Jerusalem. And he not only sacrificed a pig on it, but he built an altar to Zeus. This in the process of, of taking Israel and all of its Jewish roots and traditions and turning them into Greek worshipers. Now, there were some Jews, some Hasidim, who were very holy men. And led by Judas Maccabees and his brothers, they went and fought against Antiochus Epiphanes. They booted him out of the temple. They won liberation for Israel. This is the basis of Hanukkah. Because they, uh, in the celebration, didn't have enough temple oil to burn the candles for the duration. But they burned a mini- it burned anyway. The lamps, I should say, not candles. So this is what happened. Those Hasidim who did that are the fathers of the Pharisees. Were they actual Pharisees? Did they take that name then? For The the, the root of Pharisees means someone who separated out. Did they actually take that name then or was it taken later? No, scholars debate it back and forth. But scholars are all generally in agreement That's the root of the Hasidim of the Pharisees. Here's here's the story as it's put in 1 Maccabees in the Apocrypha. This is the history. In those days there appeared in Israel men who were breakers of the law. And they seduced many people saying, let us go and make an alliance with the Gentiles all around us. Some from among the people promptly went to the king and he authorized them to introduce the way of living of the Gentiles. Thereupon, they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. Gymnasiums. um, That wasn't like our gyms here. The gymnasiums back then were places where men went, but they were totally naked. Okay, this is, you, you did not go to the gymnasium in your Nike shorts. You went to the gymnasium in nothing. Nothing on at all. Which was an abhorrence to Israelite law, period. Not to mention all of the overlay that it would have had with who's circumcised and who's not. And all of those elements that come into play. And so you've got something that's incredibly offensive set up in in Jerusalem. According to the Gentile custom, they covered over the mark of their circumcision... They abandoned the Holy Covenant. This is what happens and it's the Pharisees that rose up and the Pharisees stopped it. The Pharisees were the Hasidim were the men who fought valiantly for the law of Moses. And they tried to destroy the corrupting influence of a bad religion. That's the history Paul grew up with. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. They were not just his father, but his father's father's father. Paul was not that far removed from it time-wise. This had happened, what, 150 years before Paul was born? 150, 200 years? And so Paul's got this concept. He grows up hearing the hero's stories. When they were kids, they didn't grow up watching Hannah Montana reruns. They didn't have TV. Their stories were the stories of their heroes. And they heard about their families. And they heard, that. I mean, this is what they had. It wasn't just their education. It was also their entertainment. And so Paul knows these stories and he wants to be like them. And so he's zealous for the traditions of the Pharisees. He's zealous to be like his fathers. He's got so much zeal beyond anybody his age. He's going to stamp out the corrupt religion. Paul saw himself protecting the true Jewish faith. Now, okay... But why kill Stephen? Why stone him? What, 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 what? We read the Old Testament. Yeah, they, they had some weird things. And yeah, it was tough. And when they took over the Holy Lands, they wiped out a lot of people. But, you know, why stone him? Well, for Paul, it's pretty simple. The law is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy seventeen two through 7 says the following. If there is found among you a man or woman. Found among you in the name of Judaism. A man or woman who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them. And if it is told to you. And if you hear of it. Then you shall inquire diligently. And if it's true. And if it's certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who's done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Paul's going to keep the law. As to law, he was righteous. He says, I lived my life fiercely following the law as I understood it. So Paul's got this. Look at it a little bit closer. Here's what he said. If there's found among you a man or woman who's gone and served other gods and worshiped them. If it's told you, you hear of it, what do you do? You inquire diligently. You have a trial. And if it's true and certain. Not just, yeah, I think that may be. I mean, there's no doubt. That such an abomination has been done, that's when you take them out of the gates and you stone them. Now, this is what Paul's doing. And so when Stephen, everybody hears, look, if they had just been worshiping Jesus as a good guy, if they had just said, Oh, Rabbi Jesus taught us a better way, that's not a stonable offense. Some scholars are real wrapped up in the idea that the New Testament doesn't say that Jesus is actually God. That the New Testament just says he was a good man and the church later developed this idea of the deification of Jesus. Well, that's just hogwash. And the whole reason Stephen got stoned is he's worshipping Jesus as God. He's worshipping Jesus as Christ. Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as anointed. Jesus as the Son of God. God. And so you've got him worshiping Jesus as God. That's the word. And so what does the Old Testament tell Paul and others must be done? You inquire diligently. You bring such a one forward. And they do. They bring Stephen out amongst them. And they bring him to court. And in front of the Sanhedrin, they say, Are these things so? Acts 7, 1. And Stephen responds, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. And he starts with Abraham. And he proceeds to go all the way through and explain exactly who Jesus was and what role the law had and how God appears outside of the temple system regularly. And, and he walks all the way through and he ends it with, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Okay. He's telling the people for whom circumcision is the most holy rite in the world. It's what sets them apart. It's what the Maccabees passage says the, the bad Jews were trying to hide their circumcision running around naked in the gym. And he says, you are uncircumcised in your heart, in your ears. You resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. You killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's a deification of Jesus. And he's the one you've now betrayed and murdered. Okay, that's when they got enraged and started grinding their teeth. But it's very clear, they've inquired diligently, and and it's really clear where Stephen lands on this. And so he is taken out to be stoned. They bring him out of the gates, and they stone him. Why do they stone Stephen? Here it is. To worship Jesus as Messiah was an offense that demanded stoning under the law of Moses. Look at that again. To worship Jesus as a Messiah was an offense that demanded stoning under the law of Moses. Unless, of course, he was the Messiah. (laughs) That's the rub. Paul didn't believe it. Paul thought he was being righteous and holy under the law by demanding and condoning the stoning of Stephen. The persecution of the church. All right. Now, you might be saying, well, Paul, why didn't you believe Jesus was the Messiah? Paul was a very logical thinker. You can read Paul and pick that up. But this was the key verse that really threw Paul for a loop on understanding. I mean, Paul, you can have arguments against things, But sometimes you have, you know, like, if you were to ask me, why do I believe uh, um, my wife loves me? I could give you reasons for weeks. I could give you reasons for months. I could go on and on and on with all of the reasons. Or I could simply say to you, I can tell by the way she treats me. And at that point... I mean, that's such a no-brainer to me. I shouldn't have to go any further. Okay, Paul's got probably a number of reasons he doesn't think Jesus is Messiah. But he's got one that to him is such a no-brainer, he doesn't have to go any further. And it's a passage, again, out of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 21-23, it says, A hanged man is cursed by God. Or if you read it in the Septuagint, the Greek version, it says, cursed is the man, cursed by God is the man hanging on a tree. And so here, if we go to the Elmo, here's Paul's logic. Okay? Bible says, oops. Bible says, anybody hanging on a tree or, or someone ha- hanging, a hanging, which includes a crucifixion on Wood, anybody hanging is cursed by God. The Bible says it. Jesus, that's point one. Point two. Jesus was hung on a tree or crucified. Point two. Therefore, Jesus is cursed by God. And the Messiah cannot be cursed by God because he's God's blessed one. See, so for Paul, it's two plus two equals four. That's a no-brainer. He doesn't have to go into more explanations. he just say, read your Bible. How can you say Jesus is the blessed one When Jesus was crucified, because the Bible says, cursed is the man who's crucified or hung on a tree. That's Paul. It took a while for Paul to get his head wrapped around the idea that the curse that put Jesus on the tree was ours. But Paul, this is why Paul says that uh, the, the crucifixion is a stumbling block to Jews. Because Jews can't understand this idea back then. The way they read the Old Testament, they couldn't understand it. Now, that's Paul. Paul the persecutor. I want to move to the stoning of Stephen. And I want to talk to you about what actually happened. Because we have a fuller picture than you read simply in the book of Acts. And I want to give you that this morning. I want to put it into context that makes it uh, more vivid for you. So you better understand it. And to do that, I've got a quiz. You ready? What do the following pictures have in common? All right, this is not in your handout. This is like, you only get this if you come to class. Here's Paolo Ucela's uh, Ucela's, uh, painting, The Stoning of St. Stephen. 1397 around is when this was done got a good look memorize it details remember what do these here's your question again what do the following pictures have in common all right there's one here's a rembrandt the stoning of saint stephen see the way rembrandt and his light does his light you can see paul on the horse over here the shadows perhaps it's paul What do these paintings have in common? All right, let me give you a third. Let's go to Fra Angelico's. This is on a panel, so it's not square, the original painting is. Um, uh, This is the Stoning of Stephen, 1449 for this one. All right, you feel like you're ready? Here, what do the following pictures have in common? I'll put them all up there in miniature so you can look at them together. Anybody want to guess? And Paul's not throwing any stones. That's good. Okay, this is one of these things where there's lots of answers. You're just not going to get mine. I mean, you can say, they all have people in them. Yes. They all have rocks. Yes. None of these artists knew anything about first century Jewish stoning. That's what they have in common for me. That is no more what it would have looked like and how it would have gone down than the man in the moon. None of these people had any clue about how 1st century Jewish stoning took place. Or they would not have painted it thusly. None. Now, would you like to know something about 1st century Jewish stoning? Okay, well let's read the Mishnah. I know what you're saying. I didn't bring my Hebrew reading glasses. Fortunately, you can get the Mishnah translated into English. (laughs) which is the one that we'll be putting on the screen today for us. All right? The Mishnah. The Mishnah, you know, after uh, uh, the fall of Israel uh, and the fall of Jerusalem in the rebellion against Rome in the the 70, around 68 to 70 AD, and then again in the early 2nd century, The the temple's been destroyed. The rabbis are trying to put themselves together to come back with some type of religion. There was oral teaching as well as written teaching. And the oral teaching, the Jews were afraid it would get lost. So they reduced it to writing. That's the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is the oral law that went with the written law in the practice of Jews... In the time of Christ. Actually probably for a hundred years or so before Christ. Up through at least hundred and fifty years after Christ. So in here there are sections that explain how Jews are supposed to live under the law in more practical details. And you can see the section on the Sanhedrin by flipping to the section on the Sanhedrin. Okay. Sanhedrin. And it will tell you, for example, property cases are decided by three judges. This is where it will tell you that a death case has to be decided by 23 judges. Cases involving the death penalty are judged before 23 judges. It explains that the Sanhedrin itself was made up of 71 members. Hold on, let's see if we can get it here. Uh, The great Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members. The small one, 23. The small one being the ones who would hear death penalty cases. You had to have at least 23. Now, it talks about all different ways this stuff is handled. And you can flip over and you can find what it has to say about how the death penalty trial took place and how the stoning took place. So let's see what happened Okay, it it says you bring in the witnesses. I've got to figure out what is is really here. You bring in the different witnesses. You let the man testify or the woman testify. And then I'm not going to tear this book. Um, I've been known to tear some to make them fit. But this is like, this is a no-tear book. Um, Okay, let's see if we can. Don't tempt me to tear this book, Steve Taylor. All right, let's see if that works. Yeah, that sort of works. When the trial is over and the felon is convicted, you can, that's an insert. That's not in the original. That's why it's in brackets. You can say blasphemer. He just, Jacob calls it a felon here. They take him out to stone him. And the place of stoning is well outside the court. As it said, bring him, bring forth him who cursed To a place outside the camp, Leviticus 24. Now, one person stands at the door of the courthouse with flags in his hands. And a horseman is some distance from him so that he's able to see. Because if one of the judges changes their mind or thinks of a new argument and says, I have something to say in favor of acquittal, then the guy at the, they didn't have cell phones the guy at the door waves his flag and the horseman who's watching for the flag takes off on his horse and gets there in time to say, don't kill him. Now, even if the, let's see if I can make that a little bigger for you. Even if the convicted party says, um, I recant, I recant, I have something to say. Jesus is not Lord. They bring him back. They can bring him back four or five times. So long as there's substance in what he has to say. And if they then find him innocent, they dismiss him. If not, he goes out to be stoned. And a herald goes out before him crying, Mr. So-and-so, son of Mr. So-and-so, is going out to be stoned because he did such and such. And Mr. So-and-so and and Mr. So-and-so are the witnesses against him. Now, anyone who knows grounds for acquittal, he got any friends here that are willing to say something, let him come speak. Now, when they get 10 cubits from the place where they're going to stone him, 10 cubits. Think about uh, a cubit's 18 inches. So that's a foot and a half. So that's 15 feet. When they get 15 feet from the place where they're going to stone him, they say, confess. Because it's usual for those who are about to be put to death to confess. And whoever confesses has a share in the world to come. Even Achan, to whom Joshua said, My son, I pray you give glory to the God. And they explain the scriptures where they get their views from. But let's keep going. If he does not know how to confess, they say to him, say as follows, Let my death be atonement for all my transgressions. Now, if he knew that he'd been subjected to perjury, in other words, if he knows that it really wasn't his fault and he didn't do anything wrong, then he can confess as follows. Because you don't want to lie and say, I confess, if you're not really confessing. But you do want your sins atoned for, so you need to confess for your sins even though you did not confessing for the sin you're getting convicted and stoned over. It makes sense? Maybe not. But this is what you say. You say, let my death be atonement for all my sins except for this particular sin because I really didn't do it. Now, when he's four cubits from the place of stoning, that's six feet, they take off his clothes. They still keep a man covered up in front and a woman front and behind. So they don't have him naked naked, but naked. The place of stoning, look at this. This is what's wrong with all those pictures. The place of stoning was twice the height of a man. One of the witnesses pushes him over from the hips so hard that he turns upward while he's falling. They took you to a cliff that was about the size, the height of uh, a little bit higher than the eve on a house. It's like being on the roof of your house and being pushed over in such a way that you fall hopefully breaking your neck. The witness pushes him over from the hips so hard that he turns upward in his fall. Then on the ground, they turn him over on his hips again to see if he died. If he died, that's okay, you're done. But if he doesn't die, then another witness who testified against him takes stones and puts it on his heart. That does not mean you take a rock and put it there. You're standing up at the top on the higher part of the cliff and you take boulders and you start chunking them down at him. So you got 14 feet or so that the boulders are coming down. And he dies. Now, that's the way it was done. With that, I'd like us to look again at the Acts account because now it starts making a lot more sense. They pulled Stephen in and they gave Stephen a chance to defend himself with testimony. And instead of defending himself, Stephen proclaims the deity of Jesus and the fulfillment from Jesus of God's plans. And when they hear these things, they're enraged, they grind their teeth This gives him, this gives Stephen a chance. Let's go to the PowerPoint for one moment. I want to put these rules up and have them fresh in your brain as we go through it. The place of stoning is outside the court, rule one. Rule two, at the place of stoning, the convicted party has a chance to say, I have something to say in favor of my own acquittal. He's got a chance. It's not a point of no return. Then when he's 15 feet from the place of stoning, they'll say to him, confess. And he's supposed to say, may my death be an atonement for all my sins. Those are the rules. Then they push him from the cliff and they drop stones on his heart until he's buried under the stones. Now we go back to the scripture with those rules. When they hear these things, they grind their teeth. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, saw Jesus, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's making it real clear. He's God. He's in heaven. He's not bowing before God. He's not stooped before God. He's not lying prostrate before God. He's not singing with the angels. He is standing at the right hand of God. Son of God. God. They cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears. They don't even want to hear the blasphemy. And they rush together at him. They cast him out of the city. Because he's not going to be stoned in the court. You have to take him outside. Cast means they throw him down. They throw him down outside of the city and they stone him. Now they lay his garments at their feet. Or no, the garments of the witnesses that are going to do the pushing and the stoning are laid at the feet of Saul. And as they're about to push Stephen, as they're stoning him, they're about to push him. This is Stephen's chance to recant and save his life. And what does Stephen say? Stephen doesn't say, God, forgive me for my sin may my death be an atonement. Stephen doesn't say, hey, they got this one wrong, but may my death be an atonement for my sins anyway, except for this one. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord Jesus, He didn't need an atonement for his sins by his death because the death of Jesus had atoned for his sins already. That was the good news. He's not crying and begging for forgiveness of sins for himself. He spends his last words, and these echo in Paul's brain for the rest of Paul's life, that Stephen spends his last words praying for Paul and the others. And he's pushed, and he's... So, we go back to the PowerPoint. The stoning of Stephen. What happened? Paul never forgot. He never forgot. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me one untimely born. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. The word untimely born in the Greek, ektromos, it means a miscarriage or an aborted child. It's it's, It's a fetus born dead, delivered dead. It's a child that's dead coming out of the canal. Paul says, last of all, like a dead child. He appeared to me because Paul was dead in his sins until Jesus appeared to him and made him alive in Christ. Paul was dead persecuting the church, even though through his persecution, the church spread. And it's a tremendous story. So that's Paul the persecutor of the stoning of Stephen, how it began as an unintended consequence, but from all of that, the church spread like wildfire, especially to the Jews, but it needed Paul to finish the puzzle and spread it to the Gentiles. And that's where we'll pick up next week as we look at his first missionary journey. Meanwhile, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's what Paul told Timothy. And You know, we know it. We say it all the time. But I do hope we realize how true it is. That our worst is never too much for God's best. There's not a human being who could ever do anything so bad that God is not big enough and strong enough. And the death of Christ not sufficient enough for full forgiveness. Unearned forgiveness. Point two. Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. That's a real attitude check for me. It's an attitude check that, do I have the right attitude to God that I'm willing to do that with my last breath? But it's an attitude check toward how I feel about others who've wronged me. I, it was absolutely wrong for Stephen to die. There was no basis for his death. Stephen would have been a blasphemer had he denied Jesus as Messiah. If there's anybody worthy of death for blasphemy, it's those people that were there that were doing the stoning because they were denying Jesus as Messiah when he was. And then Paul, the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle. I am moved by Paul's humility. It touches me. Uh, my prayer to God is that we never start thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Paul, all that he had going on and all that he'd done, viewed his collection of good deeds as rubbish in light of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And it put to shame what he had done, but still opened up for him the vista of the promises. Pastor David said this morning, that that... That passage in Philippians that God will bring to completion the good work he began. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you so much for the, the magnificence of this whole historical scene that we live in. And that we're part of this massive fabric of this, this divine plan from you. And that you reach into all of our individual lives. And you, you, you restore that which we've broken. You mend that we've torn up. And you place us in positions to do things for you that you wish for us to do. What an honor, Father, to be your children, to be your kingdom. And we pray that with humility, but, but with joy, we'll set about the things you've given us to do. We'll suffer what we need to suffer. We'll, we'll rejoice where we rejoice. But we'll do all things in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we worship and adore and know as Lord. Through his blood, amen.